Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. I'm happy to know that Post Woke reaches a global audience, but I guess my um, New York City chauvinism makes me feel obligated then to report to all of you of what's going on here in my hometown. Um, I was born, raised, and still live here. And here in the Big Apple, New Yorkers, the vast majority of New Yorkers still love their masks. They still love their boosters, and they absolutely can't let go of the fear, the fear matrix. They don't seem happy unless they're afraid. And the next mass formation that the powers that shouldn't be are trying to push upon us. I mean, they, they had some success with Ukraine, but I think that people have kind of um, gotten bored with that. But what they're trying to push now is the insanity of something called monkeypox. Now, very recently, NBC News reported that the number of monkeypox cases has risen by 60% in the last week in New York City. That sounds ominous, huh? Well, it sounds ominous until you realize that the number of people who have tested positive in New York City is 30. 30 in a city with a population of 8,177,020. And of those 30, Almost all of them, if not all of them, are men who have had sex with men. So it's a very, very um, small group of people and sort of um, insular group of people. And all that said, the most important fact here is that the people in charge are still using PCR tests to test for monkeypox. And as I hope you know by now, the PCR test as described by the man who won the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1993, Carrie Mullis, for inventing the PCR test, he said his test is not a diagnostic tool. It can't, it can't diagnose. It can't tell you that someone has COVID-19, for example. It can't tell you that someone has so-called monkeypox. This means, again, that the people in charge are knowingly using a test that can't tell you whether or not you have monkeypox, which, by the way, isn't even remotely a threat. And they know it doesn't work, the PCR test. And you really should know, everyone should know by now, that it is an utter farce. And if you're going to use an excuse like, well, in the beginning, they just didn't know. The beginning was two and a half years ago. A, they knew back then, but even if you, for some bizarre reason, want to give the benefit of the doubt to the psychopaths in charge, they by now know. If I know, if it's common knowledge that the PCR test doesn't work, then obviously the people in charge know. Yet now they're just trying to promote a new fear matrix with a new virus by using the same test. And so what did New York City do? Well, they, with 30 alleged cases. And I'm not saying these people died. This isn't like people got monkeypox and died. So 30 alleged positive results, they immediately opened up a free clinic, um, a temporary free clinic for people to get a double dose of this particular vaccine, 
which of course Big Pharma is real happy about. Well, how did New York respond? Well, they had to shut the clinic in less than three hours because they were flooded with so many people, they ran out of vaccines. And so I just hang my head in shame as a lifetime New Yorker as to how easy it is. New Yorkers like to act like they have this reputation that they're street smart and they can they can read people. And over the past two and a half years, this has been um, ground zero for gullibility. Think about it. In one week, 30, only 30 New Yorkers came up with an alleged positive result. And let's just say for the ridiculous sake of argument that all 30 were accurate results. They didn't die, they just got this result. How many people during that same week, right here in the Big Apple, died in traffic accidents, died from cancer or heart disease? How many people died on the streets, homeless and addicted to something like fentanyl? I mean, why are we focused on this? Well, we know why we're focused on this, because the powers that shouldn't be are working overtime to condition us to be afraid. And when you're afraid, um, you are capable of doing anything. You are very pliable. You are very, very susceptible to the powers of the mass formation. Now, I'm gonna, we're going to come back very shortly with my guest. My interview with Bruce Levine, excellent interview, fascinating and brilliant guy, is not about COVID or monkeypox, but it does very much talk about the role that fear plays in getting the general population to go along with something that is hurting them. So with that in mind, I will be back with Bruce Levine right after this short break. And I'm back with Bruce Levine. Bruce, welcome to Post Woke. Great to be on, Mickey. Thank you so much for being here. Um, before we get into our conversation, in a couple of sentences, what do you think both me and my audience should know about you before we hear you speaking on the various topics we'll speak on? I'm a clinical psychologist, and these days I write a lot for places that I'm sure your audience would know about, places like uh, Counterpunch, but also maybe some of your audience doesn't know about uh, madinamerica.com, which is the uh, dissident uh, mental health professional, psychiatric survivor, patient, ex-patients who are pissed off with their psychiatric treatment. That's their go-to webzine. Um, so I write for there. I've written, uh, I've been working on this book for quite uh, several years about called a, a profession without reason and taking a look at how free thinking and Spinoza and radical enlightenment would look at psychiatry. And, uh, you know, part of what I care a lot about, which might be interesting for your listeners and for you, is just how the left has gotten lost on yes. psychiatry, um, how there was a fairly, uh, wasn't that marginalized view um, in the 1970s, even in the 1980s, about, about how a lot of psychiatry was maintaining the ruling class, was oppressing people. And now this has really moved, this kind of view, this more anti-authoritarian left that people like Eric Fromm or Paul Goodman, Ivan Illich, this kind of view is now really moved way to the margins. But we could get to all of that later, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely, because it, um, 
you, you heard me say, yeah, you, you said how the left got lost. Before you finished the sentence, I was saying yes, because it didn't even matter almost how you finished it, because they seem, um, particularly over the last two and a half years, to be more lost than ever and in absolute thrall with um, Big Pharma. So I, I do want to touch on that. Um, and the link that you mentioned, where you sometimes write for, I will ask you, after we hang up to email that to me so I can include it in the show notes. I will put your official bio in there and a link to your website also so listeners can follow up because, you know, a 40-minute conversation is still just a snapshot when you consider the topics that you're tackling. So I, I'm going to begin by asking you if this is a fair question in 2022. Does psychiatry do more harm than good right now? I would say yes. Um, and certainly there are people just like there are people who are, you know, b believe in fundamentalist religions and there's all kinds of folks who find it helpful for them. And so that's, that's clear to me, but overall for lots of individual people, uh, there's a huge group, like I said, in this kind of mad in America world of, of increasing group of people who've had horrible experiences or just either non-productive. So for my looking at the research, maybe about a third of people get something positive about being on these antidepressants. A third is just a waste of time and a third is just negative experiences. So on an individual level, we could get into more, but on a societal level, which maybe a lot of your audience cares even more about, I think it's really deeply problematic because, and this is something, a big piece that was widely known in the 1970s, 1980s, that the left has completely gotten lost on here, is that to the extent that you believe that your misery, your financial misery, your emotional misery is because of some sort of individual defect, whether that defect is you're praying to the wrong God or you've got something wrong with your genetics or your biochemistry and you're not taking a look at social, cultural, political, economic variables, you're maintaining the status quo. It's a right wing psychiatry. And this is widely known in the 70s and 80s that this, this kind of biochemical determinism was sort of something that the right wanted because it maintained the status quo. If, you're, if they could get the society to be convinced that you're just depressed or you're anxious or you're substance abuse because something you've got a chemical imbalance theory, which by the way, we'll get into that later if you're interested, that's totally been disproven. Even establishment psychiatry now has jettisoned it. But if you could get people to believe in some sort of individual defect for the cause of your malaise, you're not gonna challenge the whole alienating, dehumanizing society. This was obvious stuff for people um, who are critical thinkers on the left in, in like I say, in the 1960s, 70s, and it's just become lost. And so when I say this stuff now, people go like, wow, that's really radical. There, you know, and it's it's ridiculous how marginalized that view has become. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that because I'm always somebody that is willing to look at all the factors. You know, individually, we do play some role, of course, in where we are in life. But if you're not examining the social conditions in which we live, then you're missing such a major chunk of this. And, and it does feel like um, big farmer in general. It's like there's a pill for every ill. And if you are ill, it's something inherently flawed in you. Now, you you mentioned the term, the phrase uh, chemical imbalance, and I know you've also written about um, psychiatry's uh, another phrase, medical model. So feel free to riff off of those two, combine them in any way you want. But to give us an idea of what your research has taught you about psychiatry and where where it has um, evolved to now here in the 21st century. Well, I think there are three areas that a lot of your audience may be surprised that now are no longer radical, 
to critique this uh, psychiatry's modern failure. So even establishment psychiatries are now confronting the fact that their their main theory of, of, of mental illness is chemical imbalance theory. So specifically with depression, this idea that psychiatry and drug companies came up with that uh, you're depressed because you have low levels of serotonin and can be fixed by these SSRIs, these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft. And so it was a brilliant marketing campaign, except for the fact that by the 1990s, the research clearly showed there was no relationship. There was no correlation even between low levels of serotonin and being depressed, but it was a brilliant maneuver. It, more than anything else, made it comfortable for people, not only for themselves, but to give to their kids these SSRI drugs. And we can get into how ineffective really these are scientifically. Again, though, I'm sure there's a certain percentage of your audience feel like it's helpful for them. But in a scientific sense, they're fairly counterproductive when you take a look at giant populations. And so that's one area. The second area of this crisis that now establishment psychiatry, even acknowledges at least some of them who at least look at the data, which is this complete failure in outcomes. So despite we have this increase, huge increase of psychiatric treatment, no surprise for your audience, we had like a doubling of people on psychiatric drugs over the last 20 years. Antidepressants went up 400 percent between 96, 1996 and 2008. You could go on and on. But, but despite that, if you look at every index, and this is National Institute of Mental Health, which is the lead government research agency. So the guy who was director is sort of the, the chief executive of psychiatry. Can't be more establishment. And this guy named Insel, who was the director up until 2015, long-term director, you know, he said clearly, look, if you take a look at suicide increases 33% over the last 20 years, if you take a look at almost every index, psychiatric mental illness disability rates, if you take a look at morbidity rates for people with diagnosed with serious mental illness. And this was so, and this opened it up because he did this, even the establishment New York Times was able, because they now they had cover, they're not going to expose anything that's too radical, but because he's saying that you got a guy who's been covering mental illness uh, psychiatry for 20 years, a guy named Ben Carey over at the Times wrote a whole article saying, look, not only that, you take a look at substance abuse, you take a look at anxiety, depression, every index, the outcomes have gotten worse despite increased treatment. So that's part of the crisis. The third part of that crisis is acknowledged by psychiatric establishment is their whole diagnostic system, their, their Bible. People have taken Psych 101, heard about the DSM, the Di Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Well, again, establishment psychiatry has now acknowledged this thing is completely invalid. So 25 years ago, there was guys like I, I knew and myself, were it, they were radicals saying like, this stuff has nothing to do with science. It's just people's opinions, you know? And it was obvious in the 1970s when, when homosexuality was still a mental illness and the only reason it got out of that DSM because gay activists protest. So it was pretty clear in the 70s, this DSM had nothing to do with science. It was just people's opinions of behaviors that got them uptight. And so this, um, this but nowadays, like I said, the NIMH director, uh, uh, Insula said, like when he was NIMH director, said, we're not going to use these categories anymore for uh, funding. I'm not going to fund them for research. Even a former director a former a task force director of the previous DSM. They, psychiatry, by the way, the DSM is published by the American Psychiatric Association, mm. which is the guild of America's psychiatrists. And so um, they keep revising it, but each revision, it doesn't improve the validity. It's still, even if you believe in these illnesses, they can't reliably diagnose. So in other words, people disagree every time they see somebody, you know, there's, there, there's, so there's no nothing scientific about the whole, the whole thing. And, 
you know, so even like I say, that a guy, I, I could go on and on on this, but I, I, I about about that. But those are three big areas that establishment psychiatry <laughs> agree on now, and there's many more problematic areas. Uh, but those are huge, and it leads me to to. Um... I do want to do like a hypothetical, uh, but I want to come back to just two questions I had based on what you said there. To your eye, based on your research, what percent of the DSM as it relates to psychiatry is useful and how much of the DSM, useful or not, is still widely applied by the psychiatric community? Well, it's still widely applied by the psychiatric community. And when you ask about what's useful about the DSM, this really makes the divide of like one of the divides I have in my book is called the un the unenlightened, the moderately enlightened, and the radically enlightened. And this comes from a historian, Jonathan Israel, who took it took a look at that the Enlightenment during Spinoza's era, and Spinoza was part of the more radically enlightened. But but so that's where I had this uh, categorization among psychiatry, and even the moderately enlightened folks out there. Are, are, are talk about the whole thing being invalid, okay? So like I said, Insel, another guy named Alan Francis talked about, he just, there's a, a quote from Alan Francis that came out in 2010 in Wired where he said, he talking about the DSM and he said, there's no definition of mental disorder. And he, he literally said, it's bullshit. That's what he said. And he said, you just can't define it. So, you know, to say any part of that DSM is useful, I would say is now fairly. Um, if you're if you're moderately enlightened at all, um, the only the only thing between the moderately enlightened and the radically enlightened people are the radically enlightened people are are people who believe this whole medical model, this whole idea of looking at people's substance abuse, anxiety, even these so-called serious disorders where people are hearing voices and, you know, acting really crazy. The idea of viewing them in the, a, a, as a medical problem just hasn't worked. It's been a failed paradigm. And there's lots of other paradigms that have been more effective. That, and these paradigms, for the most part, have been sort of under the radar and underground. So, so um, to make sure I understand what you're saying, the, the, these, um, let's say someone goes to see a psychiatrist with, they have symptoms, they Google them, they see them as being listed as quite possibly hallmarks of a given mental health disorder, an accepted mental health disorder. They go to a, to a psychiatrist, and I'm not picking on all psychiatrists, um, and the, you're saying there literally is no definition to, there's no true guideline for that psychiatrist to say, you know, they, like they're not saying, hey, we took an x-ray of your ankle, it's broken. They're saying, you have this, therefore you take these drugs. But they're, but the that protocol is completely questionable. And also, the person is being judged and um, diagnosed in a vacuum, like that they're a person, an individual, again, who would not take the societal issues and our holistic view of them. They're in an office. They're saying, I have these symptoms. It fits It fits the, the DSM description of this disease. Therefore, that's it. Is that sort of in general, of course, how the, how the system is working right now? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of levels of what we're talking about. One is just the whole if you even if you take these symptoms and these illnesses seriously um, and you believe that they're scientific, which they're not. But even if you do they have these all these diagnoses are made are incredibly unreliable. So in other words, there's no objective measures. There's no lab tests. There's no x-rays. There's no blood tests. And so it's all based 
on people's opinions of how they act with certain people. So I've, for example, I'm a clinical psychologist. I've seen many people who've been labeled, many young folks have been labeled ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. How does that thing happen? Usually they're in a classroom. That's where it starts. Not always, but most of the time they're in a classroom and some they're not paying attention to some teacher and the teacher tells them, you know, a couple of the teachers maybe, and they tell their parents, you might want to take this kid to get a evaluation. The kid goes to this, a pediatrician nowadays. By the way, most of these drugs, psych drugs are even prescribed not by psychiatrists, but by primary care doctors. Wow. And so the pediatrician hears that that's what you know the, the kids being sent for and often they don't mm -hmm. even spend that much time they just say well let's try this ritalin or vivance or one of these kind of a uh, psycho psychostimulant and amphetamine kind of drugs and here's the reality though on these things like adhd the vast majority overall like these kids can or young people they can pay attention in situations and research shows if the if the material is novel if it's interesting or even if they're getting paid for it so what kind of a psychiatric condition is that if the conditions change if something material is interesting or they're getting paid for it or it's novel that all of a sudden the ADHD goes away well cancer doesn't go away if you're getting paid for it not to have it so this is a very different phenomena and i think people have to understand how much culturally like these things are dictated so for example you know 100 you know 50 years ago or 100 years ago or like homosexuality got everybody uptight so psychiatrists who are progressives they figured like well it's better for these homosexuals to be called mentally ill than to be called criminal or sinners so in the so they were feeling like they were good liberals good progressives let's let's make this a mental illness because it's getting everybody uptight and we can treat them and then but they were behind the curve i mean gay activism was happening in the 60s stonewall was going on in 69 and gay activists realized this is no upgrade to call us you know, mentally ill versus sinners or criminal. There were gay activists who'd rather be called criminal than be called mentally ill. And so, of course, they fought this thing. And the way homosexuality was removed from the DSM was not through any kind of scientific process by the American Psychiatric Association. It was pure activism, effective activism, and it was removed in 1973. But on the other hand, in contrast, you look at ADHD, which comes in in the 1980s, and take a look at how that happened. In the early 1900s, nobody cared. You know, or even in the mid-1900s, there it was assumed that there were a lot of smart kids who hated school. You know, and they would have okay lives. They would stay on the farm. In fact, some parents were happy that they hated school. They could be, stay on the farm and work for them, or they were factory jobs or whatever. And it was assumed that there was only a small percentage, you know, a minority of kids who were like college boys and college girls, and that they needed to grade in high school. Well, all of that changed, right? Because the whole economy changed and society changed. So now by the 1980s, you got kids who are like smart kids who don't, they hate school. It's boring as there's kids have been like that forever. And now it freaks parents out. It freaks society out. So they must have a disease and defect. And yeah. everybody, again, a big component. And we'll talk maybe later about Spinoza, but what he was hip to was that just how fear made people stupid, made them irrational. And that continues today. If you can get a population afraid, if you can get parents afraid that their kid's going to be a loser, they'll be horrible parents and some authority looks like they knows what they're talking about, then, then you're going to buy into it. And so there, there's a couple examples how these diseases were. It's just, they're just opinions based on, for the most part, what gets people uptight in any given time. Wow. I really, really appreciate that. The, uh, this concept that 
there was a time where parents were aware enough and wise enough to not gauge their child's success by a diploma or a grade in a class because um, we do, like you said, the economy and, and, and this whole system has changed, but we still do need people to do um, manual labor, stuff that you don't need a master's degree for to get into deep student debt. And the what I was thinking as two two thoughts as you were talking um, when you were saying how we're judging these child's uh, mental health based on how they behave in a setting that's coercive. They have to sit. They have to raise their hand to leave the room. They have to be quiet. They have to be there in general. And it's sort of like studying animal uh, behavior by by, by investigating um animals in a zoo or studying human behavior by going to a, a looking at inmates in a prison you, like this this the, the the location is pretty pretty relevant as to what your results are going to be and it leads and to go back to the um the gay activism it makes me think that if the way to change the DSM can be not through scientific proof but through literal activist pressure like parents could say we don't want our kids on these drugs anymore and perhaps be as successful as gay activism. So I want to come to your book now where you you offer in the book a, a thoughts and ideas about how this system could be better. So I want to give you some space here to talk about your brand new book and encourage people to buy it and how it can be how this book can be the start of a conversation in which this system is fixable. We just have to approach it from a, like a completely different angle and not, not, not using the same lens that has failed us for decades. Well, I'd say the current system as is, is not fixable. You know, I mean, that's what people okay. who are more moderately enlightened would like to believe because they don't want to lose their, you know, income and they don't want to lose a whole bunch of things. But I will tell you that to the extent an, an important variable um, that, you know, Spinoza saw 350 years ago that anybody who's a rational, critical thinker should see today is that if you can get a population uptight, if you can get them afraid, they're, they're just not going to think clearly and they're going to be vulnerable to simple, easy answers that often, you know, those the ruling class is going to throw out there to maintain a status quo. All right. And whether that and so you can see how, like, it's important for the ruling class to have you know, create this wholly dehumanizing, alienating society where you got kids in pain of all their student loan debt. You got them all, you know, very, you know, lots of jobs are just horrible. And there are more and more folks out there. Young people are isolated, terrified of like the only way they're going to meet somebody is through these dating apps, which they all hate. It just goes on and on of all these things that just feel like life sucks. And so if you can get a rule, if the ruling class is going like, well, we don't want this whole society to, to change in any way to make it more rehumanizing, less alienating, you know, or, or, where, where people are actually being cared more about than capital. You don't want that to change. So how do you, you know, create a society that like it makes sense of like these people out there who are increasingly suicidal, substance abusing, unhappy, depressed. And so people have to understand that concept. And once they understand that, like a lot of why they buy in to any of these things that they hate, you know, uh, like most a lot of people I know hate taking these SSRI, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft drugs. A lot of people who have been labeled psychotic hate taking their, you know, Risperdal, Zyprexa, all that. It goes on and on. And most people, these ADHD folks, I hate taking a lot of their psychostimulant drugs. A lot of people hate going to school. They hate taking their student loan debt. But why do they do that? Because they're scared. 
they're afraid. They're afraid that if they don't get their degrees, their life's going to be miserable. They'll never be able to make a living. They'll never find, you know, find a partner on and on. So fear just makes people irrational and dumb. And so fear also, and this is a key thing for even mental health professionals. If somebody, let's take somebody, you know, who's acting really crazy, you know, acting really like they're, you know, they're, they're talking, walking around the street and talking to people who aren't there and they don't have an earplug in their thing. So they're not, it's not, blue, it's not Bluetooth or anything like that. They really are hearing voices or they, they're sounding strange beliefs and it frightens the hell out of folks. And, but there's a population of people who are incredibly frightened by them, who are more willing to coerce control either through drugs or locking them up. And there's another population of people who aren't so frightened by them. And that population are people who've had these experiences. They're, they're peers who've been through this process, who've had horrible experiences with psychiatry. And also what makes them less afraid is they don't have these societal liability and licensing issues. So your typical mental health professional out there, they're, they're terrified. If somebody acts crazy enough and they don't do something controlling and coercive, um, you know, they, they're, they're going to pay for it. They're going to get in trouble with society. That's part of their job. And whereas peer, peers, so this is, again, we're talking about straight mutual aid and, and we're talking about a lot of great anarchist principles. And one of the things that was interesting for me when I entered this psychiatric survivor world that I knew nothing about until the mid 1990s was how many of these people were essentially anarchists in terms of hating to control people, hating to be controlled, and they were all for mutual aid. And only very few of them knew about anarchism and that they that they were essentially anarchists. Some did. But part of what was really interesting for a lot of these people was to realize, holy cow, I, 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 I my whole life I viewed myself as mentally ill. I wasn't mentally ill. I was somebody who was more, more like an anti-authoritarian or maybe an anarchist, and I just didn't fit in this world. And that what really these authorities who are trying to control me and fit me in these boxes, you know, were, were making my life worse. And once they found their, these mutual aid underground, below the radar, things that I talk about in a profession without reason, um, they, they, that, that's what helped them. Wow. That, I, I, I can so relate to that. And I, I love that holistic perspective. And the, it's almost like people need the permission you just gave them to look at themselves for who they truly are as opposed to what's this, how society judges them. And if they, if they are, look, we all have problems and issues at different points in our lives. And it, and it doesn't mean that you're uniquely defective. It could very much be related to the world that you live in. Um, now you've mentioned a couple of times quickly, um, the name Spinoza. So I want, um, be, before we get into like a wrapping up type of question, uh, could you explain a little bit about who Spinoza was, why, and how he inspired this great new book that you wrote? Well, Spinoza was a Dutch philosopher. Uh, he was born in uh, 1632, died before he was uh, 45. And uh, before, you know, the, the thing that was most sort of intriguing about him to me, before I knew anything about his philosophy, was when I learned about him when I was a late teenager, early 20s, was that he had gotten himself excommunicated, banished from the Portuguese Jewish community. And I was going like, what the hell did he do? That I didn't even know, you know, my people, Jews, did that kind of thing. That was really interesting for me. <laughs> and they accused him of abominable heresies and monstrous deeds. And so that was really interesting, probably one of the most significant 
events of his life. And what was cool about him was that when they did that, most of the time, whenever they leveled that, those kind of uh, the Hebrew word for harem, when they leveled that on somebody, they'd get scared because where are they going to go? They can't, they can't make a living. It was a small Portuguese Jewish community and they can't you know, meet anybody. And so they, they would they would cave in. And, but Spinoza never did. He said, to heck with you. You guys want to kick me out? I'll, I'll make a life for myself. And he, and he ground the lenses for telescopes and microscopes. He met all the other cool, free thinking uh, Dutch uh, folks. And, and, and he became a significant person around the world. The other thing before I knew anything about his philosophy that was really interesting for me was how many really great thinkers, scientists, you know, philosophers had enormous respect for him. And there's this probably the most famous member of the Spinoza fan club is Albert Einstein, who actually wrote a poem about him and wow. you know, saying how much I love this noble man. And so the other parts about Spinoza that that really were interesting for me early on, besides his life, was that in his his book, his magnum opus was something called The Ethics, which for me, a lot of it, people have to understand that back in that era, when you called somebody a philosopher, it meant you cared about everything. So he was a scientist, he cared about optics, but he also cared a lot about psychology. So in that ethics, which is a hard book to read if you haven't read any secondary sources first. But really, he gets into what we would call today kind of cognitive uh, psychotherapy that's much more interesting, much more powerful than the stuff that I got exposed to in graduate school. And then last thing for people to understand, one of the other important parts about why I took Spinoza as a lens to look at psychiatry was a book that he did publish in his lifetime that got him into enormous trouble, you know, got him uh, surveilled for the rest of his life. So he published this book in 1670, seven years before he died, called The Theological Political Treatise. And it was incredibly radical. I mean, you're talking 100 years before Thomas Paine, you know, he's writing about how democracy is the best form of government. He's writing about how, again, organized religion is being like these, these is this idea that the Bible is divine in the word of God gives these clergy enormous amount of power to coerce and control and shut up him and his friends. And so he had to delegitimize this divinity of the Bible. And so part of it was, especially since the DSM is called the Bible of psychiatry, there were a lot of sort of reasons that I thought to, to take the approach of like how would Spinoza view contemporary psychiatry? I thought it would make this whole area interesting. Of, of which which another problem of modern psychiatry is these guys have figured out a way to make this whole area sort of banal and boring. And I was trying to kind of get folks through a certain way to get people to be interested in this whole world again. Yeah, you just you just helped me captivated there hearing about this man who would be on a watch list if he was around today. And and I guess it's not surprising that of all the legendary philosophers, he's not played up a lot in today's society, perhaps because of that rebellious anti-authority um, bent to him. And it's it's really, really cool to imagine that we can we can go back, not trying to capture some mythical good old days, but go back and learn from the thinkers of that time. And I love the idea of a philosopher being someone who cares about everyone, everything, because to me, like that's you can't know everything. And that's why collective efforts are so powerful, because people bring their expertise to it. But you can care about everything. And and that's very, very inspirational. Um, and and offers some sense of optimism as to ways that the uh, medical paradigm in general, but specific to this conversation, psychiatry, can be reimagined, repaired, reinvented, and 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 um, be be more useful for the people who do have legitimate mental health issues. Now, um, I'm I know that you've been interviewed many times in your life, and I'm just curious before we start to wrap up. 
in in all the times that you've been in, on interviews, has there been a question or a general like a kind of a topic or a question that you wished the interview would have would have brought up because you wanted to touch on it but so far in all the interviews it just really hasn't been touched on enough is there something you're like hey i just want to talk about this because it's a really important part of the work i do well boy that's a that's a hard one off the top of my head yeah. but the first thing that comes that comes to me is that um that that i think is is people just just the whole general idea of like why the left has sort of bought in to uh psychiatry which i mean and sort of like you know this whole issue of uh, allowing themselves to i mean you know like what is it what are the different components in this whole process here politically that is, that has made it sort of almost taboo it's almost like now i guess you know your your show is called uh, post woke and yeah. and part of part of the <laughs> dilemma for me i talk to young guys who say bruce you're going to watch out you're going to get in deep trouble you're going to get canceled because you know go to tumblr and go to these other uh, social <laughs> media these people love their they love their psychiatric diagnoses and i'm going like really and and he show they show me that that he shows me like well there's this one person who loves her borderline disorder diagnosis i'm going <laughs> Are you kidding me? And I'm going like, do you know among psychiatry, like when they hear borderline, they think of Glenn Close from Fatal Attractions. Among psychiatrists, that, that that's the diagnosis you get if you scare the hell out of most you know professionals because it's the person who's going to like try to like make the relationship into something that's not there's nothing that's more scary for a psychiatrist to find out like well somebody's going to show up at their front door and want to be friends with you you know or, or or something or accuse you of something and so and here you know so here people are taking on these diagnoses and i and, I, and so like they, that's i think one of the the questions of like i spent a lot of time talking to folks and asking like why is that how are people embracing these things and and I think part of it is, is that they've been, and this is what happens in authoritarian uh, societies. You get two choices, both of them are rotten. And so you get two choices in our society. One is if you're, you know, you're depressed, you're substance abusing, all that, you're a horrible, immoral, lazy person, or your second choice is to embrace your mental illness and disease and comply with the authorities and take your medication. Just it's no different than what organized religion did. You know, you got two choices back then. You were either a sinner or you would confess to your sins and go to church here all the time. And there was no and, and the third choice for me in terms of this mental illness is to reject this whole idea that you're immoral or that you're diseased, but to take a look at what you're doing, including substance abuse, including even not paying attention, maybe even hearing voices as something not disease, but most likely it's a kind of coping mechanism that's gotten problem, gotten a, become a problem. So you see, like, for example, in the, any of these war zones or Vietnam, which I was most familiar, lots of folks there, a lot of our troops there, they were doing heroin. They were doing all kinds of stuff just to cope. They weren't addicts. Most of them, when they came back to the States, they were fine. Some weren't, but a lot of these things to look at them real differently and not to not to feel like the only way you're going to get compassion from our society is to embrace, you know, the idea that you're ill or, you know, for, for me, this, this idea um, is deeply problematic and it works into the ruling class that there's other ways to get compassion and respect for doing some really self-destructive or problematic things and have to label yourself as essentially defective and diseased and ill. Wow. It, it's uh, it's ironic that you use the word problematic because that's exactly what the woke crowd would call you for what you just said. I mean, right. they, like there's a there's a group of young 
people who embrace be having dissociative uh, dissociative disorders. And 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 as you said, I, I never, I don't think I fully conceived of the idea that it was a way to um, fit into this authoritative system that that gave almost an explanation for who you were and created a sense of a false community with other people who got the same diagnosis as opposed to stepping outside of this paradigm and creating other kinds of communities based on a lot more um, commonality. So that that is that's that's a lot to think about right there. In fact, everything you've said here has been a lot to think about. I I um I really, really appreciate you doing this and um be just as we get to to wrap up here, please tell the, the listeners again uh, the name of your book, and I will include a link in the show notes. And I will also ask you, as I said, to give me the link you mentioned earlier, and perhaps a link or two for some secondary sources to get started in understanding Spinoza, but we can do that via email afterwards. But right now, just in wrapping up, what would you want the audience to, to, to come away from this particular interview thinking, and how can they get your book? Well, I mean, the, the book's title is A Profession Without Reason, and it's a long subtitle. It's a, a crisis of contemporary psychiatry uh, untangled and solved by Spinoza, uh, Spinoza Free Thinking and Radical Enlightenment. And it's published by uh, AK Press, which mm -hmm. is a anarchist collective. Um, these guys are, uh, you know, these folks are, are, are great over there. They do a, a great job. They published my previous book called Resisting Illegitimate Authority, which is about anti-authoritarians. And so people can get uh, that book uh, either if you go to my website, which is brucelevine.net, uh, they can go, there's a book se a section and you could get it any way you want. You could go to AK Press directly um, and get the book from them. I think they get, they're giving you a discount or, you know, lots of people just comfortable going to Amazon. And uh, it's one of the sad things that even an anarchist collective, yeah. in order to stay alive, has to deal with uh, Amazon. It's sort of a painful, humiliating thing for all of us out there. They but do make the ordering process so streamlined. Yeah, that, yeah you have to mention it. You just have to do it no, because, and, because and, the goal and, is to get your book read. And, and it's part, for me, it's relevant to some of the stuff that I were talking about. Society is so you know, uh, painful for a lot, a lot of folks who have integrity, who are critical thinkers, but they have to survive. And this is one of the things that this is my audience, by the way, this is who I care about free thinkers, you know, critical thinkers who are in pain. And by the way, there's no free thinker, critical thinker out there who isn't occasionally, you know, have some suicidal thoughts, depressed, anxious, it goes with the territory. And those are the people who I care about. And that's one of the reasons of one of the more minor reasons why that in order to stay to survive, you have to deal with forces that you have no respect for. So BruceLevine.net, like I said, is my is my web, website. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that you feel is relevant. Okay, well, I'll, I'll email you after this and, and get ask you for any other links you think that would add some important context to what you shared here today. But I just want to say thank you for, for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to talk with me. And thank you for all you do. Please, please keep doing it. Um, um, I open, I open my um, podcast every episode by saying hello free thinkers so it when you just said that when you use the phrase free thinkers and it's in it's in your subtitle i feel like um it, it was meant to be that you and i were going to have this conversation so thank you so much for taking time to do this bruce thank you mickey it's been a pleasure i'll be right back with my story of the week right after this word from our sponsor 
Hey, Mickey Z here asking you to become a paid subscriber to Postwoke. This is my Substack where I produce daily content, uh, articles, posts, and podcasts. And some of it is exclusively for paid subscribers. And also paid subscribers are the ones who are able to comment on such posts. So for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you get access to all of this. And you also are offering essential support for a project that I want to keep going and growing. So I thank you in advance for that. In the meantime, please feel free to peruse the show notes to find a link for the project that I've been running for nearly six years, a one-man mission to help homeless women on the streets of New York City. Also in the show notes, you will find a link to purchase a really cool post-woke t-shirt to let the world know what your favorite podcast is. And one more thing in the show notes is a link to my NFT photography collection in case you're interested in purchasing a non-fungible token. So I thank you for your time and for checking out all those links. And please, please consider becoming a paid subscriber. It makes a huge difference. I thank you in advance and let's get back to the show. Quite some time ago, perhaps in 1999 or 2000, I helped facilitate a happy Novak story. A female friend of mine, I'll call her M, was pregnant. She already had a young son who, she was told, had some developmental delays. Spoiler alert, he's absolutely fine today. M worried that it was the onslaught of vaccines most infants are subjected to that played a role in her son's issues. Therefore, she was seriously considering no jabs for her next baby. M came to me because she knew my work as a writer. I promptly brought her to a meeting of a local group called Vaccination Alternatives. This meeting was held out in the open in a vegan restaurant in the East Village. No protests, no shaming, no FBI sting to paint us as potential domestic terrorists. Just a group of well-informed and well-intentioned Americans exercising their rights to free speech, expression, and assembly. M asked a ton of questions, and ultimately, she opted to not have her baby, a daughter, jabbed. Fast forward to 2022. I'm still acquainted with M, and I know she's one of the many who said a firm no to the COVID injectable products. As for her daughter, I wish I could post a photo of her for you because she is the picture of vibrant health and works as a fitness professional. I guess you could say that my friend M regularly keeps her guard up.